Two X-rated. That's five in a row. Ah, six in a row that six we've... Six in a row. Really successfully I mean, introduced ourselves? Six for six. Oh, well, we introduced the podcast. Yeah. Not our names yet. Yeah. Oh, shoot. I well. know. I'm one half of your hosting duo, Ryan Whedon. I'm the other half, Matthew Fisher. Mm-hmm. Here to stimulate and cultivate your cinematic appetites. You're, you're here being an ear witness to our blatherings on. Yeah, do you think the news used to call it ear witness? Like, when network was... news had, like, eyewitness news. That's true. Why didn't radio have ear witness news? Like back in I the... heard the crime going on, but I didn't see anything. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> on Ear Witness News. Radio 24. I guess it does... You hear the ear... Wa... You think ear wax. Yeah, or ear wig. No. Ugh. No. No. Maybe it's best that there's no Ear Witness News. Ear... Yeah, ear... It's weird when you put ear in front of something, it's gross. Like earworm, when you have a mm. song that's you know, stuck in your head. Yeah. It sounds... That's just gross. Yeah. Which is weird. I feel like an ear is not particularly gross as, like, you know, a hole goes. Yeah. Yeah, until you put something, like, ear candy sounds gross. Yeah. Eye candy sounds fine for some reason. Yeah. I wonder <laughs> What's up with that? Is there a conspiracy against ears? We'll put this on the, the red-headed docket. <laughs> yeah, eyes are fine. It's the eyes that are in power. Trying to keep the ear down. Wow, you just blew the top right off that scandal. <laughs> Ears are being impressed by big eye. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this, this episode got <laughs> abstract real fast. <laughs> I was I was sick this week. Never any good. Downtime, but I. Part of that downtime I spent listening to uh, this podcast that everybody needs to talk about, um, S-Town. Oh, I haven't, I didn't, li- I haven't listened to that, or, and I haven't listened to the previous, whatever. The serial one? Yeah. Yeah. I listened, I listened to Serial, I liked it. Um, and this one, it's basically yeah. an extended This American Life, which is like, if you, if you like This American Life, you're probably gonna like this thing. Um, but it was almost more interesting to see, like, everybody jump on it with their fresh takes and criticisms, you know? Okay. Like, everybody had some some way of taking down this huge podcast, you know? Were these, like, legitimate criticisms, or was it just people trying to, like, shit on something because everyone else seems to like it? They seem like legitimate criticisms, but it is, it's sort it's, some of it was like, oh, they didn't get you know, women write on this, on this podcast. And it's like, well, there weren't really a lot of women on it. Mm. You know, it's like, it's like that reverse criticism that I, that I really hate when it's like, it's like, man, the Godfather really treats black people terribly. Oh, that's not even an element in the movie. Like, you know, I guess like by omission. Yeah. It's not a great movie for black people, but it's like, that's not part of the, that, that shouldn't even be introduced into the criticism. I feel like, you know, what about when that one mob boss, stands up during like the meeting about uh whether or not to sell heroin and you're like we got to keep it out of the schools you know keep it for for the blacks and the homeless they're animals anyway let them lose their souls i guess yeah i guess that's pretty bad yeah or like um somebody criticizing uh crimson tide for not talking enough about the glass ceiling it's like there's one woman in that movie (laughs) And she's, she's not even a career-oriented person. She's a mom. 
Crimson Tide. You know, Ryan, your topical references just might be uh, too topical for our listenership. I watched it last night, okay? <laughs> did you really? I did. Never seen it. It's okay. Yeah. Tony Scott. Tony Scott, who I uh, didn't realize was a uh, prolific yeah. director. Did a bunch of big name stuff. Top Gun. Top Gun, Days of Thunder. Yeah. The Hunger. Which I know the Hunger, movie. yeah. Yeah, his first movie. That's nuts. It was kind of an interesting movie to watch just from the standpoint that it like, it kind of falls in between uh, 90s lighting and 80s lighting. Okay. <laughs> Where they're like, they're, he's not afraid to throw green lights on a character and have it be like, this is the room with green lighting, this is the room with red lighting, like, to help you distinguish where you are, but then also have a lot of, like, kind of flat 90s lighting going on, too. Okay. It's kind of got it both going on. Uh, I read somewhere once, I don't know how true it is, but that Quentin Tarantino was a script doctor on that. That's right, yeah. I guess Denzel confronted Tarantino about his use of the N-word in his movies. Oh. Uh so, Tarantino, I guess, had to defend his, you know, usage of it to Denzel himself. Let's see. At that point, he would have had Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction under his belt. Not Jackie Brown yet? No, because it was 95, and Jackie okay. Brown, I think, is 96 or 97. Okay. I mean, there is just the scene with Quentin Tarantino in Pulp Fiction. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that scene alone will probably, yeah. That could rub someone the wrong way. Yeah. Yeah. So you know how I'm, you know, like you, I'm always on the lookout for a good Parker Posey movie. Oh, yeah. To see if they actually exist. <laughs> you know. I can think of one. <laughs> I love her so much. Yeah. But I can't think of a movie with her in it that I, or a Parker Posey movie. There are definitely a handful of movies that she's a in. Supporting, yeah. You know, the Christopher Guest movies. I was going to say, Waiting for Guffman's the one movie I, I Okay. Uh, and then she's in my favorite Superman movie. Ooh. Uh, but in terms of movies that she stars in, that's a little different. Yeah. Uh, and she didn't star in this movie, but it, she was in it. It was an early nineties sort of, I don't want to say erotic, but it was a gay sexual thriller called Frisk. Ah, oh, that sounds so familiar. It seems to be cut from the same cloth as like the, the early, uh, George Araki films. Greg Araki? Greg Araki, yeah. Yeah, okay. Where, like, same type of budget and, you know, uh, equipment as uh, Totally Fucked oh, Up God. and stuff it's, like that. It's not based on the book, is it? I don't know. Is there a book? Yeah. What's his fucking name? I hate him so much. Dennis Cooper is the name of the author. Oh, okay. I'm not familiar with him. Ugh. I've read, like, four, three or four of his books because everyone's told me, oh, he's great, he's great, he's great. I hated everyone. Are they just, like, edgy? Yeah. It's, okay. like, it's, like, disgusting and, like, he'll, there's always, like, bloody, violent, gay sex okay. and, like, um, he'll throw in some, like, punk rock references and then yeah, like, everyone's that, like, this, this is that. amazing. <laughs> it's, like, it's garbage. I hate it. Okay. Well... This movie was based on one of his books, I guess. Yeah, okay. I'm sorry. You're just oh, triggering no. a nerve I haven't thought about in a while. <laughs> uh, but I mostly rented it because I knew that it was a gay movie and I knew that it had Parker Posey in it. And I was like, oh, huh, you know, how bad can it be? <laughs> and it's as bad as most every other Parker Posey movie. Yeah. I mean, I, I shouldn't say that it's her movie. She's only in like 20 minutes of it. Mm -hmm. And it's it, it must be from the real early 90s. She looks real young, like... 
pre-party girl young. Oh, man. Uh, and she doesn't have a big part in it. Like, I don't even think she's in the opening credits. Oh, wow. Uh, and the movie is not good. <laughs> I didn't know they made a movie about that. I will say that as far as, like, casting good-looking people who also look sort of everyday-ish, mm-hmm. they did a very good job. Okay. Uh, everyone looked handsome but gettable. Okay. Uh, which I feel is is a line that not every movie walks. Yeah. Uh, but that, I would have to say, is the strongest quality <laughs> the movie had. All right. Uh, I also watched a movie called Goat. Oh, the James Franco... And so- Nick Jonas. Fraternity. Yeah. I almost said sorority. <laughs> and if it's got Nick Jonas and James Franco in it, you know it's going to be kind of gay balls. Yeah, yeah. Uh... And, you know, like other movies about uh, young men hazing one another, I found it deeply erotic. (laughs) Uh, Also not very good. Oh, that's too bad. The trailer looks great. Yeah. uh, And I will say, like, you know, Nick Jonas, I think, is very proud of his, you know, body gay jailbait status. Oh, yeah. Uh, and he is even better in moving pictures than in the uh, oh, wow. stationary ones that I've become accustomed to. <laughs> Fancy that. These moving pictures are more erotic <laughs> than these non-moving ones. You heard it here first on Ear Witness News. <laughs> I'm gonna. It, it's solidified now. It's set in stone. We watched my favorite Wes Anderson movie. Oh wow! The Grand Budapest Hotel. Indeed, we did. Uh, also, his newest. I don't even know what year it came out, but it's like 2013. Yes. Uh, and yeah, I remember I saw it in the theaters, and I walked out just elated, just jubilant at uh, how good it was. And then on subsequent rewatches, I was like, this just gets better and better. I will say that the last time I saw this before watching it for the podcast um, was in the theaters as well. Okay. And uh, I enjoyed it much more this time around. Hmm. First time I saw it, I was just kind of like, kind of shrugged my shoulders and was like, meh, yeah, that was fine. It was fine. It was good. Yeah. Um, I enjoyed myself. But then this time around, I was like, actually, this is, this is a really good Wes Anderson movie. I guess it's just a good movie. I should, yeah. I shouldn't qualify it that way. Uh so the premise is, it's a concierge, you know, uh, Gustave. Monsieur Gustave. Yeah. Uh, of a hotel, the Grand Budapest Hotel, back, like, in a day where you would often take a trip just for the hotel. Right. Like, it was sort of a spa getaway in one thing. Yeah, there's soaking baths in there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and... I mean, there's not much to the plot. Like, there's different things that happen in the course of this line. But, I mean, the basic plot is one of his clientele leaves him, you know, passes away under mysterious circumstances, leaves him a very valuable painting. And the movie's just him trying to, like, maintain the rights over that painting. Right. Uh, but then there's there's twists. Within th- there's that. twists and there's turns and there's other, like, little pockets to the plot. But, like... The point A to point B is essentially just those things. Yeah, but the inciting incident. <laughs> yeah. There's just a lot that goes on in there. Uh, 
So a couple years ago, a friend of mine and I were having a discussion about Wes Anderson movies because we feel that, like, in a scientific method, n- most of his movies are pretty strong. Mm-hmm. And that the ones... There's no one that I, uh, we felt really stood out amongst the others. Okay. You know, when you think of Wes Anderson, there are people who say they like Rushmore the best. There are people who say they like Royal Tenenbaums the best. And we kind of came to this conclusion that because he, he steadily makes pretty solid films, it's the differences in, like, the characters that really make you, like, reach out and connect. Sure. And I think, and I don't know what it says about me, but I think because I like Gustav H. so much, like, <laughs> that's sort of, like, the winning characteristic of this movie for me. Sure. Uh, he is a great character. <laughs> he's Yeah, I guess... Wes Anderson has been friends with Ray Fiennes for a long time. Okay. But they never worked with one another. Okay. And they were at like a party or a soiree or whatever rich and famous people do. And Wes Anderson was like, yeah, I have this new script. We're like starting like pre-production like in six months or something like that. I'll send you the script. If there's like a part that you feel is right for you, just like let me know. We'll work something out. And so yeah, like a week later, Ray Fiennes is like, well, I want the lead. (laughs) And so he, he did. Yeah, and he did a great job. Wes Anderson made it work, and Ray Fiennes is one of those actors, sort of like you know Meryl Streep, where it's like I love her, but she's so rarely in a movie that I care about. Mm. Like I've never been able to finish *The English Patients*. God, what an awful movie! How could you not love that movie? How about it sucked? <laughs> and that's sort of how I feel about most of his films. Yeah, you know, *Made in Manhattan*. <laughs> uh, Harry I mean, Potter I, and the Sorcerer's Stone. I haven't even seen all the Harry Potter movies. Oh, they're fine. The kids' movies. Uh, yeah, so it, it's sort of nice to see him in a movie that I care about, and then he's doing so well in it. So, yeah, like he kind of makes that part for me. Yeah, I like uh, one thing I do like about this character that's kind of different from other Wes Anderson characters is his. Um, Use of profanity, which oh, is a lot of fun. I love how so many times like people would be speaking eloquently, uh-huh. and then they'll be interrupted by something profane. Yeah, like that. You see it from the very beginning when Tom Wilkinson's like sort of relaying, yeah, yeah, and then yeah. he's interrupted by a, that kid. Yeah, it's kind of a theme. Of yeah, this. none of the poetry. Whenever anybody starts a poetry, oh, yeah, nobody, it never gets finished. Never. Then there's a poem, but we might want to go ahead and start in the soup since it's forty-six stanzas. A moist black ash dampens the filth of a dung-dark rat's nest and mingles with the thick scent of wood rot while the lark song of a gutter snipe. There's there's a problem, I think, sometimes uh, with movies where they want to feel more adult, so they just throw in a lot of profanity. Yeah. Um, and I feel like this movie does a great job of not doing that with its profanity. Because, like, in the past, Wes Anderson's not a, not a huge... He uses his profanity um, really like a sprinkling, like, yeah. so that it has more impact, you know? Um, and in this movie, it's a little more liberal, but mm-hmm. it's fun. Yeah. Because... Like, it, it still kind of spikes and surprises. Yeah. Uh, like, when they're taking the boy with the apple picture, like, before it's been gone through probate and they actually have it, yeah. and they replace it with the picture of, like, the two ladies, yeah. like, fingering <laughs> each other. Yeah. Like, that gag gets me every time. <laughs> I love when he's talking with his, uh, the French butler in the monastery. Who'd they kill this time? My dear sister. The girl with the club foot? Yes. 
Those fuckers. It's just like, that's right. That's what he would say. Yeah. Like, this is like, a, he's kind of, he comes across as this really prim yeah. kind of character, but it's like, he would curse. You yeah. Know? Like, when he's not around the guests in professional setting, he, right. would, he would become a very sailor-mouthed man. Well, in the scene where they're, they're approaching the boy with Apple Picture, and he's describing, he's like... This is Van Heutel's exquisite portrayal of a beautiful boy on the cusp of manhood. Blonde, smooth, skin as white as that milk, of impeccable provenance. One of the last in private hands, and unquestionably the best. It's a masterpiece. The rest of this shit is worthless junk. It's great. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. It, it's a nice interplay for that character. Yeah. It all... It, and... I don't always see it coming, like, the timing's never the same. Yeah. So it's like, when it happens, it's always sort of funny. Yeah. And this is, I think, a decidedly darker Wes Anderson movie. Okay. Um, just because, like, you know, there's there's some violence that happens, which you don't see normally. But uh, it doesn't feel like he's trying to make it more adult through the cursing, I guess. Yeah. Because it, it seems like it's used with a purpose. Yeah. Indeed. One of the reasons that I really cling to, to Gustav, is that decision-making can be like a muscle. Like, you learn to, like, flex and grow. Sure. Uh, and uh, Gustav, like, that muscle's, like, fully formed. Yeah. Like, he knows exactly how to make decisions and, like, go about his day, you know, as effectively as possible. And, I don't know, for some reason, I find that a very attractive character trait. Totally. Uh, I'm yeah. horribly indecisive. <laughs> Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> Just, yeah, especially, like, in his job, like, he goes at it with, like, focus and care, and he's got high standards, and, yeah, I don't know, his his ability to, to make decisions, I just find instantly appealing. Yeah, he knows what he wants, he knows what he needs. I feel like it's a reflection of uh, Wes, maybe, a little bit, because I feel like the movie itself is sort of Wes focusing, or not focusing, but, like sort of at, like, the pinnacle of his strengths, in a way. Hmm. Like, there's a lot of big sets. I mean, there's no, like, real special effects, but there's a lot of big sets. And, you know, with Wes, like, he's got a certain, you know, style. Like, he likes things to look a certain way in color and in shape. Yeah. And in it's size. Very fastidious. Yeah. And I feel like if you're going to be, like, a set designer, like, at this point, to make sets that were this big for him, mm -hmm. you know... You're not going to work with like new people. You're probably going to work with people who know what you like and how to create what you like. Yeah, totally. And so he, I, I felt like he's working with a crew that knows how to work with him really well at this point. Because mm -hmm. you have the the hotel itself that's like all in like pink and purple and like fuchsia tones. That's a real place too. Oh, is it really? Yeah, I, I looked it up because one of my notes in here was: Are these sets or are these actual places? And a lot of them are. Like, the actual hotel, the big atrium, was an old mall. Okay. Yeah, that was, like, I guess... I didn't write it down. But it, I guess it was, like, uh, the big atrium of this gigantic shopping mall. Which huh. Is, which is really cool. And then the uh, interiors on um, Tilda Swinton's house, oh, the yeah. old lady uh, who dies. Those are That's actually a castle somewhere in the, oh, okay. like, the Czech Republic or something like that, so... Anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to say, I love his purple jacket meshes really well. Like, in the hotel, it looks right at home. But then, even at different... Like, when he's, like, in the... When he's giving his, like, nightly sermon or mm -hmm. whatever. Oh, yeah. And it's, like, just gray and drab and white. And, like, the purple really pops against, like, the, the drabbery of the behind-the-scenes. And 
when he's at Tilda Swinton's manor, like it's all you know, deep brown varnished color, and so like the purple pops against that. Like right. it does a good job of letting you know that like this is not like his territory, right? Like, just like a visual cue that like this is not like the world that he has control over, right? And he uses he uses color really well. Mm-hmm. Just um, gosh, and now that I'm thinking about it, it's not a matter of lighting really, although he does some like tricks mm-hmm. with lighting in this movie. Um, it's basically just like well lit. And then you tell the story with how everything, with, with the actual objects, the color of the actual objects, not like you don't falsely color them with lighting, um, which sounds like a nightmare <laughs> from a prop department standpoint. Yeah. Um, but I don't well, know, there's probably I mean, people who love doing that, so. Yeah, and, and so, you know, I'm thinking that, you know, with sets and costumes, like he's got to be, the whole crew, I feel at this point, has to know how to design things to Wes's specifications. Yeah. And then I, this also feels like he's got like more of like his, like his specific cast and crew or his cast backing him too. Like a lot of the regular Wes Anderson players are here. Yeah. You know, Jason Schwartzman, uh, Bill Murray, Jeff Goldblum. I mean, Harvey Keitel and Edward Norton were both in Moonrise Kingdom. Mm-hmm. Willem Dafoe has been in other ones. Uh, Adrian Brody, just a lot of repeat cast members. Like, really, the only new ones I think were Ray Fiennes, and then I don't remember the actor's name who plays Zero, but. Right. Yeah. And they're kind of the most um, fully fleshed out characters. Yeah. When you think about it. everybody else is kind of, is a supporting role. Yeah. Um, and they almost like to a cameo. Almost, yeah. You know, situation. Uh, well, there's like the one scene where they're like calling the different concierges right and like bob balaban's in there only to like answer the phone yeah (laughs) and you never see him again (laughs) bill murray's got like two scenes in it yeah but he's been in every wes anderson movie since rushmore that's actually something that um i guess is kind of fun i don't know I, i go back and forth on this where it's like you see the preview for a Wes Anderson movie, and you and he shows like who's going to be in it this time, like the huge cast. Mm-hmm. Like since Royal Tenenbaums, it's always like a cast of thousands, yeah. you know. And so um, there, there is always this sense of like, and here's where so and so is, you know. Um, like definitely in in Moonrise Kingdom, I got that feeling where it was just like anytime they introduce somebody who's like. A character, I feel like they needed like their own light motif or like Peter and the mm. Wolf style thing. Like, mm-hmm. and here's their theme. <laughs> um, but Which like, would kind of make sense in that movie. Yeah, yeah, actually, right. Uh, but I go back and forth on whether I think that's fun or if I think it's like kind of cloying and annoying. <laughs> so this time around, when I was watching today, I was like, no, this is actually I'm enjoying this. this I remember time. hearing an uh, interview with Jeff Goldblum a couple months ago, mm-hmm. and he was talking about Wes Anderson because he has a reputation for being really demanding of his cast and crew. Okay. He's very uncompromising, I guess. And Jeff Goldman was like, no, that's not quite right. Like, if I come to him and be like, you know, this monologue, like, I kind of want to do it this way, he'll, you know, ask me why, and then we'll do a shot, and we'll do it my way, and then he'll be like, okay, now we're going to do it my way again. (laughs) He's (laughs) like, he'll, he'll usually let me do, like, a shot my way, and then all the rest of the shot's his way. Yeah. He's got a specific vision. Yeah. And I mean, it really comes across, 
even in his earlier films, I haven't seen Bottle Rocket in 10 million years. Yeah, I haven't but, either. I don't remember it very You know, well. I just watched Rushmore not that long ago, and even then you can just see it already. He's learning, like, his specific technique and yeah. how he's going to do things. And here, I, I feel so effortless almost. Like, it just it feels second nature that, yeah. of course, the camera just does a totally lateral pan <laughs> across a long hallway. Yeah, for every it's like scene. a living painting, basically, yeah. is what he does. He, um, there was a, there's a, t- I don't know, I don't know, there's probably a technical term for this, but I noticed it more in this film than I've seen in others of his, okay. where it's like the camera's looking straight forward, and then it'll tilt 90 degrees downward. Oh, okay. Because he does, he'll turn like 90 degrees with the camera a lot, um, Especially in this movie, that that happens a lot too. But he does it. He also does it like down, like yeah. on the what is that? The y axis, I guess. Um, but it's like it's funny to ascribe that to one director as their visual style. Yeah. But it's kind of like who else is doing that shit? Like I can think of like maybe not like the down the 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 you know axis one, but like panning left to right definitely has been used for a long, long time. Yeah. But. The panning, like, down, I don't know if that one's been used very frequently, but, like, just, he just doesn't, he doesn't do handheld, like, he does just right. very specifically. I remember last time I watched Royal Tenenbaums, I was looking for, or I wasn't looking for it, but there was a scene, it was, like, at, right after the car accident in that yeah. movie. Yeah, oh, that's, that's what I always think of. And there's one handheld scene in that. It's, like, they're closing in on, like, Ben Stiller or something like that as he's, like, looking at the accident. And it feels so out of place. Yeah. Like, it does not feel like a natural West. Right. I mean, that's what his his strengths are, is, like... And specifically, I guess we can talk about this movie, too, but the, that scene in Royal Tenenbaums feels like a painting, that, but it's, like, moving. You know, he moves the camera across what he has made into a moving painting, basically. Yeah. And, I mean, like... That, I think, is his strongest visual style. It's all over this movie, too. Yeah. Um, he uh, he doesn't do it so much before Royal Tenenbaums. Like, it's not really... It's kind of, like, budding a little bit in Rushmore. Yeah. But it really comes to fruition starting with Royal Tenenbaums, and then he does it from, just from then on. ramps up, really. Yeah. yeah. And, it, and he just does it really well. Yeah. What is it? Oh, I like the aspect. The changing of aspect ratios, depending on what part of the story we're in. Yeah. Because um, it's like, it's it's basically a book. Yeah, it's a little girl who has a book in her hand. Like, she's looking at... Yeah. It's like, like a, Russian a nesting dolls of yeah. stories here. She's looking at a monument of Tom Wilkinson, and then she looks at the back of the book, and there's a picture of him. Right, and then we cut to him, and he's talking to the camera. Yeah. About his, about his it's like, experience. It's like he's relaying like the forward of his book or something right. like vocalizing it and then we jump to a young tom wilkinson played yeah. by jude law and then the aspect ratio changes yeah to the long like i guess it's 70 millimeter i'm not sure what it is but it's like a long panoramic view yeah um i'm not sure what that ratio would be but uh but then we get when uh he meets with the hotel owner who was, turns out to be zero um and then he starts telling his story. We cut to a different aspect ratio. Which yeah, that was really clever. I uh, so I watched this on Blu-ray, and like before the movie starts, it says like, "Please adjust your aspect ratio." It's yeah. got like an old-fashioned title card telling you to do that. I didn't notice it when I watched it in the theater. Neither did I. It's funny uh, how it took till today. To, to I noticed it the last time that I watched it. 
like at home, my like my first rewatch, I I noticed it, but yeah, in theaters for some reason, I didn't feel it at all. It doesn't read the same way. But yeah, I like that as a trick because it doesn't like even though a lot of the movies full screen, mm-hmm. it doesn't feel full screen. Right. Yeah. Like it still feels like you're watching a widescreen movie. Yeah. But and yeah, I, I like the the Russian nesting doll part of the story. Like you start in what's presumably present day. Mm-hmm. goes back. I don't even know if they say how far it goes back when you're seeing Tom Wilkinson talk. Yeah, I mean, by judging by the decor of the hotel, that's like 60s, 70s okay. that he's there, I would yeah. say. And then, like, it goes back to the 30s, maybe? Yeah. I'm not even sure. For the, yeah, the brunch of the story takes place in, like, the 1930s, I think. Yeah, that would be my guess. Art Nouveau, Art Deco, mishmash yeah. going on there, which was kind of fun. What do you think of... Tilda Swinton versus just hiring a normal old actress. Okay, I have a fun fact about this. Oh man, I this uh, I my fun pants. I don't want to blow my fun fact wad too soon here, but um, originally it was not supposed to be Tilda Swinton. Okay, um, it was supposed to be our friend and uh, lovely woman Parker Posey, <laughs> Gina Gershon. Close, <laughs> Angela Lansbury. <laughs> Can you imagine how cool would that have been? As much as I, I love Tilda, that probably would have been cool. I know. And oh. she, she had to back out because she was doing Driving Miss Daisy on Broadway at the time. And there was scheduling conflicts. But it's like, damn, wouldn't that have been great? Yeah. Like now, And now when I look at Tilda Swinton in that role, it's just like, they were trying to make her look like Angela, <laughs> present-day Angela Lansbury. <laughs> That's what they're doing. Um, oh, that's too bad. She's great. Don't get me wrong. Like, uh, yeah, I mean, I love Tilda Swinton. Tilda but... doing gray face is, is tons of fun. But, gray, um, <laughs> but yeah, Angela Lansbury really would have been a like cherry on top there. Yeah, that would have been pretty awesome. <laughs> uh, but as far as as far as your question, well, how do I feel about Tilda? I mean, it's it's fun. Although she's kind of this is something uh, Tim, my boyfriend, brought up. He's like. He said he doesn't like it because he feels like she's always just trying to do something weird these days. And he's like, she's just trying to be like the female Johnny Depp. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I guess so, kind of. <laughs> well, when Tilda gets attached to a big budget Disney action franchise, <laughs> then I'll make that. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to her Pirates of the Caribbean, whatever it's going to be. Maybe it needs to be a Disney ride. So like Tilda Swinton is Space Mountain or something. <laughs> Tilda Swinton is the Matterhorn. <laughs> I like, uh, I liked, <laughs> going back to the movie that we're discussing. <laughs> yes, of course. Uh, I like how uh, Ray Fine's character, Mr. Gu- Mr. Gustav, uh, kind of has a sexual ambiguity that they toy with. Okay. Like, he's definitely into, like, old women. Yeah. And he's definitely, like, straight. I think we get that impression. But it seems like he gets, it gets toyed, toyed with a little bit, like, um... Uh, the Adrian Brody keeps calling him a faggot, and yeah. he's like, he's like, you probably fucked my mom, blah blah blah. And he's like, I thought you said I was a faggot. And he's like, you are, but you're bisexual. And then also when like he goes into the um the prisoners call him in when he's delivering the gruel, yeah, and they're like, me and the boys talked it over. We think you're a real straight fellow. Well, I've never been accused of that before, but I appreciate the sentiment. It's, it's fun. Like, he can be fastidious mm-hmm. and uh, put together. He doesn't have to be a homosexual. Yeah, that's true. Uh, 
I like that even though the movie, from certain points of view, you could say that it sort of lionizes Gustav. Like he seems, you know, right. a symbol of class and, you know, decadence from this era and stuff like that. But it, I like how it sort of points out, especially near the end, it's like he became the thing that like he always sought after, like blonde, insecure, right. wealthy. <laughs> like, I was like, oh, I like that. Yeah. It also, um, I think that speaks to the Russian nesting doll style of the storytelling mm-hmm. um, in that um, he, as the story gets passed down through these different you know, people, that it can kind of turn into a myth almost mm-hmm. even, mm-hmm. sort of like a, um, like a Paul Bunyan style story that like he just becomes this bigger, larger than life character. Now there's a Tilda Swinton movie I want to see. <laughs> if you had to pick... A favorite shot from this movie. Do you have one? Mm, a favorite shot. There's just the scene where they're hiding the picture of Boy with Apple in the safe. Mm-hmm. And like one of the lobby boys comes in like, the police is here to see you. And they're just kind of frozen. Yeah. Like looking massively suspicious. <laughs> yeah. Excuse me. Uh-huh. The police are here. They asked for you. Tell them I'll be right there. I like the shot because it works so well with what you've just seen. And yeah, it cuts to them. They couldn't be looking more suspicious. Yeah. Uh, and it's a classic Wes Anderson, like, this is a painting, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, if you pause during that scene at any time, you could put that on a wall. Yeah. And then as the still, and then you could analyze it as, like, what's the story that's going on here? Yeah, you know? it definitely looks like they're hiding something. Indeed, there. and then there's somebody peeking in that has something to talk to them about. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I find the scene, like, funny and simple all at once. Like, because they're just standing there, essentially. Like, there's not a lot happening. Yeah. But just the timing and the delivery. And the camera and, doesn't move. No. <laughs> like, it, it it gets cut. Like, you get, the, like, the 180, you know, reverse angle of it, but... Yeah, there's not a lot to that scene, but I don't know. It was just framed nicely, and Ray Fiennes, like, nailed that one line. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I can. Yeah. And yours? I really like... I don't know why I like it so much, but it's just, like, exactly what I want to see when it comes, and it's during the gunfight. Okay. uh, When they're on the very top floor fighting across the atrium on those... And he, he pulls down and looks up from underneath... At the, at the gunshots. Okay. And I remember when I saw it in the theaters thinking, like, that is so cool. That's what it would look like if you were in the atrium. Yeah. You know? And which is where most people would be gathered anyway. And so, I don't know. I just think that's really smart. And it was, and it's exactly what I want to see during that gunfight. Um, so, I and then this time around, it gave me goosebumps because I knew it was coming. I was like, mm. ooh, it's going to be the undershot. <laughs> I love this shot. Um, and I don't know why. It just, it just really gets my... Gets me excited. <laughs> uh, to go back to the violence in here, because you mentioned how this is a little bit more violent than most yeah. uh, Wes Anderson joints. I do, I always forget that Jeff Goldblum gets the door shot on his hand. Yes. And every time I'm like, oh my god. <laughs> that just happened. That, wow, okay. That's the thing, the violence is kind of shocking in this too. I mean, like people die... When the R rating came on, like, as the movie was starting, I, like, I forgot, I was like, R rating? For what? I'm like, oh, they do kind of swear a little bit. Oh, like, there's a severed head. Yeah. 
Um, they kill a cat. Kill a cat. Yeah. But he gets his comeuppance in the same way the cat does. He gets thrown off a cliff. Oh, yeah, he does. Goodbye. <laughs> I did write that. I wrote kitty with a little sad face. <laughs> it made me sad. Yeah, I don't, I don't do well when, like, animals get it in movies. Like, for some reason, like, I stop suspending disbelief. Like, uh, I watched that, uh, Barking Dog Never Bites or whatever it is. Oh, okay. The, the Bong Joon Homo. Yeah. And, like, the beginning of that movie is that guy trying to hang a dog. Yeah. I was just instantly, like, this has such a steep road to climb for me now. Like, <laughs> this is going to be, like, an okay movie tops if everything goes well after this. <laughs> mm, I have to talk to you about this movie, then. We'll save that for later. Um, but yeah, he's just, he's good with the shots, man. Like, it's all really memorable. Yeah. And I feel like his shots aren't super complicated. They're just layered really nicely that, you know, the sets or the background and the costumes look solid. Mm -hmm. So like whatever you're seeing is solid. And then he just, he, he's not overly voracious with how he moves the camera his shots aren't super complicated or intricate or they're not like a David Fincher where they're like roaming all around and doing all sorts of different things. Like it's just cameras here and it might pan or it might zoom or it might, you know, lift at some point or, you know, drop, but it's all in a straight line, you know, more or less. Yeah. It always feels like a play or a stage basically. Oh, I mean that scene in Rushmore Mm -hmm. when they're doing the play at the very end, like war. And, like, the way that, like, it, the camera will kind of pan as, like, the troops are, like, walking across the stage. I'm like, this feels like a Wes Anderson movie. Totally. Like this. Yeah. He, uh, so, I mean, I guess we kind of brushed upon this earlier, but, like, my favorite Wes Anderson movie is Rushmore. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it has a lot to do with the scope of it. Okay. Um, being that it takes place over four or five months, something like that. And there's like three main characters. Um, there's not a lot of like winking to the camera, which I think starts to happen right after that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just feel like it's a really good marriage of the sort of whimsy that he, he's known for, but also grounded in like real character development happening. Okay. I think he kind of forgoes that character development in his scripts later on for more of a just like pastiche and like big grand sort of Russian novel style storytelling. I can see that. Um, And that's not necessarily to a fault because I really, uh, I think he focuses later starting with like Royal Tenenbaum to kind of fix, he picks one character to to have their growth happen. And then all these other people are are like secondary characters around him. Um, That said, um, uh, this might be my second favorite now. I don't okay. know. Like I, I used, to, I was always saying Royal Tenenbaums was my second favorite, but like this one is is really great. This one, I, and f- so you're talking about, you know how it's more about like the look and the the pastiche of it. Yeah. Uh, while watching it, I kind of realized that most of like what I would put in like favorite movie categories. Mm-hmm have like a strong emotional element like they move me in some way or they make me rethink the concept of what is art you know stuff like that and this doesn't no (laughs) like it really i don't feel 
super emotionally connected to any character. Right. I don't think that it makes me rethink movies or art or expression. But for some reason, it hits this sort of zen middle ground of being consistently enjoyable from frame one to frame whatever's last. Yeah, it's definitely got... It's got a, an X factor that I can't put my finger on. Yeah, and so even though, like, my emotions aren't, like, swinging, it's not a, you know, breaking the wave sort of, like, emotional journey. In fact, yeah. it's quite the opposite. Like, yeah. I start it and I'm happy and I end it in almost the exact same, like, happy mood that I was in when it started. Right. Uh, which is... And no one really grows, no. honestly. <laughs> yeah, it, it's not it's not a huge journey. Like, we, we get a good story out of it, but... And I just, I feel like this is sort of unique in that type of, of movie, because usually if I really, really like a film, it has some sort of emotional attachment to it. Yeah. Or there's something in it that grounds me emotionally to, like, the sways of it that I really care about the characters and want to know what happens to them. And this, it's not that I don't care about the characters, but it 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 seems to be outside that nor- that normal sort of emotional attachment when you're invested in a story i'm glad you made me watch this again because i i kind of blown it off as being like yeah it's fine oh okay but i did like it a lot more this time around yeah big big fan good job Wes. next week I do oh i'm uh your jaws clenched your palms are sweaty <laughs> yeah i kind of had a little trouble figuring out what i wanted to do because i realized i this whole season i've really been focusing on only movies from the last two decades so i was like uh i should do something older but i'm not going to i was gonna say we just had a movie from 1965 i know that was your pick um <laughs> but i'm gonna do uh a movie by a lady director. Oh man! Um, and it's a movie, of- and you have to qualify. <laughs> director definitely infers man. <laughs> Indeed, uh, but I only saw this movie once, so I, I'm, I don't know. But it's something I've always wanted to revisit. But I want to do "Take This Waltz." Oh, okay. A Sarah Polly uh, movie. I saw that in theaters. Yeah, I only saw it once, and I, I've, I've returned to it a lot in my brain. So we'll just see if it. Stands up against the second viewing. If I remember correctly, so Take This Waltz is a Leonard Cohen song. Right. And I remember that there is a cover of a Leonard Cohen song in there, and I want to say it's by Feist? I don't know now. Oh. But it's like something they only recorded for that movie. Oh. Uh, A song of Leonard Cohen, or a cover of Leonard Cohen's Closing Time. And it's one of my favorite Leonard Cohen songs, and they only, like, play it for, like, a minute or something uh-huh. and it's so much better than his version oh wow <laughs> i'm like oh god i need to get that <laughs> i couldn't find it on any of my uh previous illegal sources before <laughs> like they never released a soundtrack for it and i couldn't find it anywhere at least when i looked for it initially mm. it was like i don't know it seems like going out going out of your way to record something in the studio and then not releasing it in some way shape or form mm. seems odd to me Maybe it's one of those things that you're going to have to, like, contact someone on, like, the dark internet, and then you'll meet them in a back alley, and they hand you, like, a thumb drive 
floppy disk. <laughs> this has the song you're looking for. That they use it I put it in, like, I find, like, a, you know, my Macintosh from 8th grade, and I put it in, and just a bunch of, like, Watergate secrets. <laughs> like, damn it, Deep Throat, again! <laughs> uh, yeah, so, I don't know, we'll see. Yes, we will. Um, shall we plug our junk? We should. We have a um, Twitter account <laughs> at X Rated Movies. We have a Facebook page at Rated X Movies. You can um, send us emails through the net traverse at uh, x.rated.movies at gmail.com. Knocking us out of the party tonight. <laughs> the music that'll cover up all of our flaws. <laughs> Uh, like, rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, especially the rate and review, because uh, it helps get the word out there for, for uh, similar podcasts, people looking for this type of thing. We love knowing what you think about us. We nearly, like, shit ourselves when we saw a new rating. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, make us shit ourselves. Also, if you want to give us money for hot quality content like that, um, we have a Patreon, and uh, it's just patreon.com slash x-rated movies. Everything's x-rated movies. Next week, take this waltz. Next week. We'll see you then. I mean, you'll hear us then. You'll be ear witnesses. <laughs> be the first ear witness next week. X-rated. Bye. Bye.